0: I'd love for you just to
1: take a moment and remember when you were between
0: 13
1: and 19 years old. For some, it may have been just a few short days, weeks, perhaps, maybe you haven't even gotten there yet, and for others, maybe decades have passed. Think about what was important to you during that time in your life? What types of activities did you
0: enjoy? What activities did you hate? Who did you trust? How did you connect with people? How did you find ways to get your needs met? What did you learn about yourself, about life, about others?
1: Those teenage years are really important and an area of our conversation for today, for time to come alive. My name is Valerie Hope. I am your host and your coach, and I have the beautiful opportunity to speak to a fantastic guest. Her name is Kathy Lyons Conrad. Kathy is not a stranger to the show. She has actually been on this show formally one other time, along with her husband, and then informally another time as her husband's guest <laughs> when he was featured. <laughs> and uh, Kathy, you know, I just am so honored to have you back on the program, primarily because the way you and I met, it was so serendipitous. Uh, We went to an event, a conference that featured like there was like a thousand people in the audience, and I remember Francis, your husband, sitting next to me, and we had to do a few exercises where we paired up, and you were just on the other side of him. And just out of those small interactions and the conversation, we all three of us bonded and created a friendship. And this has been almost two years now. Can you believe it? Two years. And since then, not only have the two of you been a part of time to come alive. Before you also uh, were driving through Dallas, Texas, back in December, we had a chance to meet. And where this whole notion of you coming back came forward was because literally days before, I was speaking with a, a an acquaintance at an event, and she just shared some frustration she had about uh, you know raising. son who's a teenager and some of the challenges she was experiencing and although that's not my expertise my work i feel is to connect people and so i thought hmm i'm sure there's somebody i know you know teenagers are not there my area of expertise but i'll keep an eye and ear out for what might be possible and literally just a couple days after that conversation you and francis fly into town or blow into town we have lunch and and something you said in the conversation, which I don't even recall now, all of a sudden had me go, Kathy, why do you like teenagers so much? <laughs> so anyway, I, I'm so glad that we're here to have this conversation because I love teenagers. I loved my teenage years for what it taught me about myself and how it prepared me. Although I took for granted at the time that it was, any, it was doing anything other than making myself miserable. But welcome to Time to Come Alive, Kathy. Well, thank
2: you. And and thank you so much for inviting me. And, and yeah, I remember that conversation over lunch in, in, uh, in Dallas, as I remember having told you that I'd gone back after retiring from, you know, 40 years of being a child and family therapist, I'd gone back uh, to doing it. And I had realized how much I had during that time I had missed working with teenagers because they just I they're just wonderful to work with I just love them wow.
1: what what exactly did you miss about working with teenagers oh
2: they I think that part of teenagers where they're thinking things through maybe maybe for the first time they're, they're making realizations and they're having insights about what they want in their lives and where they want to go and the struggles and how to deal with it. And, and it's just everything is so right on the surface. Um, uh, probably the things, the same things that drive parents crazy are the things that I really enjoy. Um, <laughs> all of those moods and emotions being so right on the surface um, is... Mm-hmm.
0: may have a little bit of some
1: technical difficulty Kathy I think our video your video may have paused or mine one of the two either way I'll keep talking <laughs> until I think you come back but yeah one of the I think is interesting when you say that for teenagers things are right on the surface right you you were talking about how those are the things that make them so fascinating to work with, but yet at the same time could be really frustrating for their parents. So I'm really curious about, uh, well, first of all, let's just set this out out first, is that you don't have children of your own. You and Francis don't have kids of your own. Right. So so what is it about that having that experience, how does that inform, or maybe it doesn't, how does that inform how you interact or how open you are (laughs) to working with teenagers?
2: you know, I'm not sure how it informs that. I do know that that most of my compassion towards families that are working with teenagers comes from just the families that I work with. Um, And I think that, you know, uh, it's just, it's not an easy road to navigate all the time, because the teenagers themselves are not having an easy time navigating. Um, And, and, you know the the choice of having children or not wasn't something that that we actually made an active choice about. It was just one of those things that in our lives it happened and uh, but because of the work that we were in that also meant that our extended family um, every time there was a teenager who would get into significant trouble or would need an awful lot of uh, social, emotional, mental support, um, they'd come and stay with us for a while. So uh, we got to um, take care of a lot of teenagers in our jobs as well as in our families um, who sometimes struggled,
1: yeah. That's, and you know, that's so important. I, I recall even, I was not a difficult teenager. Well, I guess I'm not probably the best person to say whether that's true or not. (laughs) You'd have to ask my parent. Although we do remind them, my my brothers and I remind them that we actually were were quite good. We never got in trouble. We all made good grades. We all went to, you know, we did, you know, my brothers were Boy Scouts. I was volunteering in the summer. So I mean, we were quote unquote model kids in many ways (laughs) in the grand scheme of things. And I remember looking back, when I was a teenager, there was a point in time, I don't even know, it was not a conscious decision, where I did not smile in a photograph until I was probably 19 years old and I was in college <laughs> or something like that. Because anytime my family wanted to take a picture of some sort, and I would look back now in some of those pictures, and it was horrible, Kathy. And I love smiling. I have a beautiful smile. I've been told <laughs> many many people have a trophy for a pageant where I got to smile trophy and I remember that was like my, my weapon that I was going to look as unhappy and miserable and <laughs> and frustrated as possible anytime I was around my family and it was captured on film and I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that now because you know they did nothing wrong but I don't know what happens. what is it that what is a, what is this whole thing about teenagehood right <laughs> adolescence that has teenagers do some things that are maybe a little odd, and also people react so strongly to it.
2: Oh, there's so many things. Um, One of the things is that, you know, adolescence has become that transition between childhood and adulthood. And we think about it that way, you know, even though that is not always how it's been. um, We think about that, that adolescence is where people learn, they're, they're starting to learn how to be an adult. Um, but for an adolescent, they're really going from everything having been taken care of for them, they knew, they have the regimen, they ha- know what time bedtime is, they know what time dinner is, and, and they need to be at the dinner table, they need to go to bed, you know, they have all those, they gotta go to school, they, they have all those things down. And then all of a sudden they reach adolescence and they realize that the expectations are changing and their expectations of themselves are changing. They're starting to see that they have more choices and they have more options. And they start to see the expectation is that people are no longer expecting them to just follow the rules, but to be personally responsible and um, and to somehow be a person who is making all these choices in their life where when as a child all the choices were made for them and mm. and so i think it's a transition period of that is really confusing to teenagers and so therefore it's really confusing to families
1: <laughs> I, this is a part that i think makes me laugh a bit because every single one of us that is now on this side, right? Anyone above the age of 20, 19, 20 years old knows mm-hmm. that there's something that happens in that transition, right? Like you said, that it goes from being told what to do to being expected to do the right things, right? Somehow there's, there's that transition. Some of it is very ex- explicit, some of it is not. And yet it seems to be the area or the time frame of life that people dread the most there's something around it that seems to be really heavy what what do you make of that and, and what kind of things do you deal with in your practice? I think a couple of things
2: that that make it happy uh, happy uh, happy <laughs> that make it that make that difficult transition or make us expect that difficult transition is I think for one thing is that since the 1900s, in the 1900s, there there wasn't even teenagers. You went basically from being a child to working and, or being a child to being a parent or being, you know, a child to being married. And, and, um, and there wasn't any of that transition. It was a completely different world we lived in. And um, I I would guess that if people um, on this call were to ask themselves, when did they stop feeling like they were a teenager and really feel like they were an adult, I'm going to guess that it wasn't 18, which is where the legal system puts it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess it was probably older than that. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because of how many times I've asked that question and how many parents have said, well, I didn't really stop feeling like I was a teenager till I was 27, you know, or till I was 25 or till I was, you know, whatever. I think a lot of people would give an older age than our legal system does. Um, we also made you know we had all the child labor laws change and and we had all the the different things throughout our our u s history. We had a lot of different things that really focused on no teenagers are are their own group and we started looking at at um, uh, the hormone changes and the brain changes and we realized that there are a lot of things that um that are different amongst teenagers than between children and adults. And, and so I think that, well, um, I kind of got off track on that <laughs> question. No, no, but, but this, is,
1: this um, is perfect because you know, I okay. think the question you started with is, when does one know that they're not a teenager anymore? And I think that's really brilliant. I, I've been reading a couple of books by Luann, Dr. Luann Brizendine and she one is called The Male Brain and the other one's called The Female Brain. And there are chapters dedicated to the teenage male brain and the teenage female brain. Fascinating. I have have two brothers who have children who are in that age range. And I've sent them screenshots of those specific chapters. I'm like, you may not want to read the whole book. You may not care that much, but this is something that you might find helpful. And, mm-hmm. and you're right, one of the things that's mentioned is that the prefrontal prefrontal cortex, right, with our, which is our executive function, is not fully developed until we're in like our mid-20s. Right. So It's not mm-hmm. likely that, that what you said, that self-responsibility that we expect that you know, from a 14, 15, 16-year-old doesn't actually, it, it's kind of misplaced in some ways. But you, you might have a really interesting point because if there was no such thing as being a teenager in the early 1900s, Meaning, now they were responsible for family, for a home, for a career. Mm-hmm. That we not, we didn't necessarily have those particular the expectations. Were different, in other words. So, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious about. You also mentioned that being a teenager today versus then is, is, yes. is Oh,
2: unfortunately.
1: Okay, What are you noticing in in the conversations you're having with families about? What's more prevalent now than before?
2: I think there's a lot of things that are different between, especially, you know, for my age, between when I was a teenager, but most of the parents when they were teenagers and the teenagers now. Um, One of the most, the top top of the mind one for most families is the social media, Um, the social media is so it's like everybody knows everything immediately. And so there's very little privacy and, uh, the whole idea of keeping secrets and who do you tell and who do you trust that is, it's up for grabs Mm. with the social media. Um, that's one thing I think the, uh, perception of, of drugs and alcohol, Uh, is completely different. Um, It was always something that teenagers might experiment with. And I think there was a level of understanding that there would be experimentation. But we have many states that have uh, marijuana as legal. And so people don't even see it as a drug.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And because alcohol is legal, a lot of people don't see that as a drug, even though they can have major impacts on uh, especially a developing brain and body. Um, so the, the prevalence of the drugs that are available and accessible to teenagers today and the amount and the difference of them this, uh, is pretty significant um, oh. than, than when I was a teenager as well. So I think that's another thing. Um, I think there are some constants, and one is that um, almost every family that I uh, mm-hmm. work with, I think they, the parents really want to connect with their children. Mm-hmm. They really want that connection. They, um, the, in some ways, they miss what they, the connection that they used to have. Um, and they really want a connect, they want a connection, even if it's not the same one. And the teenagers really want a connection with their parents. Now, the teenagers also want a connection with their friends. Mm. And sometimes those don't go well hand in hand.
1: That's interesting because I, you know, I remember as a teen, and I, I'd love to hear what your experience was like, but I remember as a teen that, uh, I didn't really care if that was that connected to my parents. <laughs> now, when I say con- perhaps well, let's define connection, I can recall for me connection was really more about I had my needs met, right? There was food, there was shelter, there was someone to take me to wherever I needed to go, <laughs> right? So I think a very self-centered way of connecting, right? So everybody doing the things that I thought were important to me or that were able to provide the things that I was, you know, that were important to me was, was my priority. And I did connect in meaningful ways with other adults. For example, mm-hmm. my godfather was one of them. He and his wife both were friends of the family that somehow I just connected with automatically and he became like my mentor and you know, I, he wasn't even my godfather at the time. He was a friend of the family that I'm like, You're my godfather now. <laughs> and he's been that <laughs> for, for, for now almost 30 years here. So it's been interesting that that's one of the experiences that for me, I've found connection with others as a teen, especially easier that were outside of my family than within my family. And now, you know, it's completely not reversed necessarily, but. I find it so much more meaningful to connect with my parents today than I did you know, when I was 15. What, what is it about connect? Tell me about connection from your perspective. What would, what would well,
2: I think when I say connection that the, the teenagers want to connect with their parents, I think they want to feel heard. Mm. They want to communicate. They want to have that communication with their parents. And I think the parents want they want to feel heard and they want to try to understand where their, where their children are coming from. So perhaps I should have said communication rather than connection. Um, I tend to just see them uh, similarly.
0: Mm. Um,
2: I think you're right though. A lot of, of, uh, connection in adolescence do have, are to people outside our little smaller family. Mm. Um, or with teachers we find teachers that can be mentors we find um, church leaders that can be mentors or in your case a godfather yeah um, and and so I think that we do start expanding our circle of influence mm-hmm. so to speak
1: yeah what was it like for you Kathy can, can you think back when you were a teenager what stands out for you
2: Well, I I kind of joke with the teenagers I work with now that that there's not enough money in the world to make me want to go back and relive my adolescence. (laughs) And and yet, you know, even though I was probably a a quote good kid, I was pretty much of a typical middle child. And I was quite rebellious i that 's the other thing I say is i 'm really grateful that when I was a young person there wasn 't a a diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder. We just <laughs> used to call it rebellious <laughs> um, and, um, and and it was it was a time also uh, and I think that 's something that hasn 't changed is that the there seems to be a part of adolescence that's risk-taking and going out there and trying new things. We were talking about expanding our circle of influence, but by doing that we're taking risks and sometimes those risks we take take us further out. My adolescence was um, was a pretty challenging time. It was a time that my family was going through some major difficulties. I think my parents told me later that it was a good thing that I was acting out so much because it provided a place where they had to be on the same page because Mm. they were struggling with some things that had happened in their lives. And so I my acting out kind of became a way for them to communicate at least about something. (laughs) (laughs) So you
1: connected your parents to one another. Yeah.
2: And I actually have had teenagers come in and say, well, I'm, I'm in here for counseling because I want my parents here because yeah. they need, it. yeah, I've, I've actually, it doesn't happen very often, but I've had, I've had teenagers say that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about what you have these, what conversations you have with teenagers. And granted, I know that you likely have a confidentiality policy, so don't yes. expect you to reveal anything of great importance, but What are generally some of the subjects that come up or the types of conversations that you're having? Well,
2: as, as a therapist, there's usually something I, families come in for therapy when they've already tried everything they know what to do and they, and nothing has been successful in their minds. Um, or they get referred by the courts or by school uh, because there's so much difficulty. So the population of, of teenagers that I work with in therapy are people who um, have more significant issues. I would say the biggest two things that I run into with teenagers over and over again is our feelings of depression and feelings of anxiety.
1: Mm. Kathy you said something that I thought really interesting here families come to to your office right for therapy when they've tried just about everything else what things one are they trying and by the time they get to you what what impact has been experienced versus had, had they come in earlier in other words so what what kind of things are they trying that that now they've just like, okay, this is not working. Let's go see a therapist.
2: Good question. <laughs>
1: um, I think
2: most of the things that parents try is the, the way they were raised. So if their parents sat them down and talked things through, then that might be their style with their kids. Um, if their parents sent them to their room to think about it, that might be their style with their kids. So I think rely on. Um, and some families have pretty small toolboxes, and other families have pretty big toolboxes and um, and so you can kind of if something works, you can use it for a little while. It usually isn't going to work. Forever, because the whole thinking behind it is something 's wrong that needs to be fixed,
1: okay, say more about that <laughs>
2: um, we We tend to see problems um, as oh this is this is something that has to be fixed rather than um, oh this is this is something that 's come up, and we can find uh, an opportunity in it to do something different. Can you
1: give an example of
2: what that um, Oh, let's see. Um, an example would be, I'll, I'll use the example of anxiety because it's something that, that does bring in a lot of teenagers, particularly, um, especially as they start getting closer to 18 and they aren't sure what they want to do and they know that's going to be the expectation. Um, so a family might come in with, with a, a teenager that has such high anxiety that they just can't even think straight, that they're not able to do their schoolwork, they're, um, they, sometimes they're even wanting to cut school or they are cutting school uh, because their, their feelings are telling them that something awful is gonna happen. Mm. Um, and so they come in often that's, and both of those depression and anxiety are often things that parents have had struggles with themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they aren't quite sure how to advise their children because they never completely figured it out themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one thing, but, but to go on from there, when they come in, um, the, the assumption is, is that they need to fix the anxiety, and my assumption isn't always that, especially as, now this is getting the difference between therapy and coaching, which I also do. Yes. Um, the coaching, my assumption is that if, if somebody's experiencing anxiety, then they're thinking about stuff that's in the future. I have a saying that, that anybody with anxiety has a really good imagination.
1: What is you powering context for
2: anxiety? (laughs) Right, because you can't feel anxiety unless you're imagining things that haven't happened yet. Mm. And so um, rather than seeing it as something that has to be fixed, I see it as oh, what's their imagination telling them about something that hasn't happened yet? Ah. So it's a really different way of looking at it.
1: What's the, what's the impact of reframing
2: that? Um, sometimes the impact of reframing that can be pretty quick. Um, uh, and, and it's not just a reframe, but it's a recognition of, of people being able to um, realize when they're in the middle of it, oh, this is just my imagination taking, taking off with me. Um, another way I talk about it is that we have really, um, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the word in a, in a movie, the uh, special effects. We have an, an amazing special effects department going on in our brain all the time. And, and we believe the special effects. Whereas if we were actually at a movie and responded to the movie as if it was real, if we stood up and shot the bad guy in the movie or something like that, we'd get carted away. But we That's an extreme example, but we respond to our special effects in our brain all the time as if it's real. And anxiety is one of those. We create this entire, in fact the, the, we talk about creating a scenario mm-hmm. that, Scenario and scene actually come from the same word. Mm-hmm. So we create these scenes to a movie that hasn't even happened. And we react as if it's real. So if somebody can recognize that, it shifts everything.
1: And I mean, and we do not, I mean, we often say and hear how teenagers are so dramatic. Yes. <laughs> that's, another, that's another correlation. To that yes, imagination, exactly. right? <laughs> wow, exactly. yeah, that's, that's such an interesting way to look at it. I, I don't know if you and I talked about this, but there's, a, there's an author, uh, Shafali Sabari, and she talks a lot about conscious parenting. She's been on Mind Valley, I believe, the, mm-hmm. the Mind Valley instructor, yes. which is a, that online mm-hmm. platform. Uh, have you done any of her work or seen any of her stuff?
2: I, I've done very little of her work, but I have seen her. And that conscious parenting, I think, is a really um, important part of, of, uh, of parents' work mm-hmm. when they have a teenager. Because parents, parents are going through changes when their teenagers are hitting teenage years too. It's not what just the teenagers who are confused. It's the parents.
1: What do you notice
2: the parents are going through? Well, depending. Um, Most of the time, it's a point in the parents' lives where they're, if they're, depending on how many children are in the household, that they're also starting to think about, what am I going to do once the kids are gone? Mm. Because once kids are past adolescence, they go on to college, they get married themselves, they, you know, they leave the parent home. And so a lot of times parents start thinking about what they're going to end up doing. But it's also a time where I think parents, I think most of us had some struggle or another in our teenage years. And so whatever that was, parents are, I find parents are usually trying to protect their children from having the same struggles they had. Yeah. And, and so innocently, they're trying to, you know, kind of control that one area where they had trouble. They might really kind of control that, that with, with their kids. Mm. And, and that sense of control is like, I'm not a child anymore. I'm going to do what I want. And, and so that's going to, those interactions between the parent and child can get really triggered around those those issues i don't know
1: if that made any sense yeah i mean it does i i think you know one is you said there's a a significant transition for the parents to see where their journey is in parenting there's so many years devoted to like you said the nurturing the caring for the connection the all the things that that it's done with the child until they're at that age where all of a sudden there's a switch that goes, now you're gonna be responsible, young man or young lady. Right? And mm-hmm. the idea that now they have a very short window, in essence, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. determine what am I gonna do without being this type of parent. Their yeah. parenting also also transitions significantly. You know, their journey as yeah. a parent, in other words. What I, I'm really curious about. What is it that you do or say to these young people? Obviously, you have a a way of looking at being a teenager, a perspective that they don't have or the parents don't have. But what is it that you do that connects with teens in ways that parents may not be doing?
2: Good question. One thing is that teens usually feel more comfortable talking to somebody outside of their own family Mm. than they do um, to their parents. And some of that has to do with the teenager feeling like they don't want to bring up something to their parent because they know that you know it'll they 'll never live it down or because they're embarrassed or ashamed or um for whatever reason uh teenagers i think st- well overall teenagers are expanding their circle of influence is the is the language I use, and so they're they're interacting with more people than just their family and and I think that it's if they have a safe person to talk to, they often feel really comfortable with that, um, as long as they know it's safe.
0: Yeah.
2: Because in their teenage interactions, their peer interactions, they don't always know it's safe, especially with social media.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: That's, yeah, you're right. I, I would say that was my experience, and when I adopted my godfather, <laughs> it was because, I felt saved. My, his wife was our youth group leader or church youth group leader. And, you know, like I said, they were friends of the family for many, many years or from Panama, just like we, we were, their kids were about 15 years older than, than I was at the time. But I, I do recall that sense of comfort that I could just say about anything. There was very little judgment. There was no, <laughs> there was no, um, if any judgment, but there was no, I already know who you are, background mm-hmm. in their mind, I think, or at least in my godfather's mind, like the way I assumed or perhaps experienced with my own parents. There was no frame of reference for them. When you were seven years old, you never da 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 da. <laughs> it was always like, I can create something new. So it was, I don't know. I see you nodding.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to to and, and especially you said no judgment. Mm. I would say the teenagers bring that up a lot. They, as as judgmental as they are, <laughs> um, and I'm talking about they being the person sitting in front of me, not necessarily teenagers as a whole, but yes. as judgmental as they are towards others and themselves, I think that they're really looking for a place where they can feel not judged.
0: Mm. And
2: I think that's also the, the, the effect of a... Um, everybody knows everything social media type of, of experience is I think there's a lot of, of people feeling judged and, and a lot of people judging on social media.
1: And it never goes away. I, I think now that as you're bringing that up, you know, something that I did was that was really embarrassing that one day in band or gym or whatever goes away after the experience back in the 80s and 90s today right it's there forever if it's recorded if it's put on you know uploaded online if people are commenting and it could be unearthed for decades to come well what do you see happening with our with how youth are reacting to that perceived judgment from others what how how do they take that on or take that in
2: I think that they avoid thinking about the, that it's going to be there for so long. I don't, I don't think that's a part of what they're thinking and, and feeling for the most part, at least the young people I've talked about. It's like, that's not a part of their thinking. Um, they do react in the moment. And I think that increases the drama. Mm. We talk about teenagers being dramatic. I think they're even probably even more dramatic now with the social media because it is instantaneous and it is, and everybody has an opinion about everything.
1: Mm. Yeah, so you,
2: like, you get
1: yeah. frowny faces, you get thumbs down. I mean, there's instant judgment from people that actually have never earned the right to say anything about what we're doing or not doing.
2: Exactly.
1: What, what a different world to live in. So yeah. Kathy, what are some things that you notice are perhaps mistakes or missteps? Let's call them missteps. Things that don't work that, that you would... Actually, no, let me reframe that. So I don't think it's that helpful to talk about what doesn't work. Well, what works? <laughs> what works when connecting in meaningful ways with teenagers?
2: So... So
1: I think
2: that one of the most difficult things for all of us around communication is that, and, I, and I'm pretty sure the, the conscious parenting talks about that a little bit, um, maybe not in the same words that I'm going to be using, but usually when we're listening to somebody, we're thinking about what we're going to say in response. And communication is really making sure we understand what the other person is meaning before we respond. Mm. In terms of teenagers, um, really sitting and listening to them. Um, and, And in terms of, parents the teenager really sitting and listening to them without all the assumptions about oh they used that word so they must mean this that's going on in our head while they're talking if we can just really try to hear what the other person is saying I think that goes a long way
0: Mm -hmm.
2: in therapy when I'm doing family therapy one of the things that I'm often stopping people and saying wait a minute i want you to make sure that you heard what they were saying would you repeat that again maybe in a little different way so the other person can hear it um i used to have a sign on my desk that said i know you believe you think you heard what i said but i'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what i meant
1: okay you got to say that one again (laughs) if I
2: can say it correctly this time I know you think you understood what you what I said but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant wow so there's always two parts of communication hearing the other is a really big part of it but also saying what we mean is a really big part of it and some people have a real struggle with that teenagers don't have the brain function put together to be able to say what they mean all the time.
0: That's true. So
2: the onus falls on parents to be able to say, "Wait a minute, I just heard this. Am I hearing that correctly? Did, mm-hmm. is that what you meant?"
1: Yeah. Two things come up for me. One is what you're saying is that it's the responsibility of the more mature adult, right? It's mm-hmm. all about it the more mature adult to hear in a way that's generous that gives mm-hmm. space for the other person to either explain, rephrase, to really, to, to, to give, give them an opportunity to really express what their needs are. And, I you know, Nonviolent Communication actually is a book by Marshall Rosenberg that's very, very good because it does require, it requires the reader, once you read through it and you experience it, to really focus on what we observe rather than the stories that we create about what we observe. So rather than interpretation, we talk about, okay, I just heard you say this, or I just saw you do this. This is how I feel. This is what I need. And here's my request. There's, the, there's kind of a, a, a process or structure for communication. And the other thing I'm also hearing is that that mature adult, our responsibility is to help pull out of that teenager the type of communication that will further the conversation rather than shut it down and you didn't say that in those many words but that's what i made it mean in my head uh, <laughs> and you just did an excellent
2: example of what i was talking about by checking out to see if that's what i
1: meant mm. and it is okay and when. When you have a teen, you know, teenager in front of you, and I, again, we're using this term so broadly, teenager, right? And, and really you're working with, with parents, with families who need some support. That's essentially it. They need some support and the support might look different for each family member or each person. But when, when you're working with those individuals, how do you personally, Kathy, how do you personally prepare for the types of conversations that you go into? Is there there something that you do or practice or anything that would be helpful for people to know? We may have a little bit of a lag in our video. So Kathy, I don't know if you're hearing me, but you are, I can't hear or see you right now. all right, here we go. I think you're reanimated. Now I can see you <laughs> and hear you. OK, so repeat whatever you may have said that I missed.
2: Oh, I hadn't said anything because I was aware that there was a, a frozen situation there. Okay. Um, and So my way of preparing is really to be as present as I can. Hmm in with whomever it is that's sitting right across from me. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I don't know that I was ever taught. But I became that same conversation we were having about communication. I became aware, I guess I was taught that. I became aware that I could listen to what somebody was saying and listen to what was going on in my head at the same time. And it was much more effective if I was just present to what somebody was saying.
1: Hmm. So when you're saying so, being present, you're talking about not, not necessarily engaging with your thoughts about what they're saying. You're literally just listening to what they're saying.
2: Right. And, and not just not engaging with what I'm thinking about what they're saying, but not thinking about, oh, yeah, I need to get gas on the way home from work tonight. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, we've got that meeting coming up. What time is it again? Or, you know, all of those are, are like a a parent might be going, I I need to get dinner on the table. What, you know, and, and all those things that are going through our head all the time. If I can. Quiet that down and really be present, that goes a long way in a person feeling hurt.
1: Mm. What practice do you use that helps you develop that ability?
2: I don't know that I actually have a practice. Over the years, I've tried a number of things. I'm a little too ADHD to meditate. It's, 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 I
1: think it's ironic we're talking about being present. Yeah. <laughs> Self diagnosed. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Um, but that's probably why I had to work so hard at trying a number of different things, mm. is because I'm so easily distracted. You know, I, I joke with families all the time something will, there'll be a loud noise outside, and, and I'll come back and go, squirrel from that movie Up, you know, where the dog is, you know, just talking away and then goes squirrel. And, but it's also not judging, you know, so I'm aware that I do it and I I can bring it right back and, and I'm aware families do it too. It's Mm -hmm. just part of being human. So I think that's the other piece that that's probably the other piece that I do so much is that I recognize that all of us are doing the best we can do in the moment we do it with the thinking we have at that moment.
1: Mm. Recognize, say that again, you recognize the best that they're doing with what, with with the thinking that we have at the moment. All of us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
2: And, And that can go for somebody who's, um, as extreme as, you know, in terms of the people sitting in front of me, as extreme as the people using drugs on a a daily basis, Mm -hmm. they are making choices that make sense to them at the time.
0: That's true.
2: Um, And it may not be what's best for them in everybody else's mind, but it makes sense, so they wouldn't do it. Mm. And parents who are who are you know interacting with their kids are are they? Oh,
0: you Pause again, Kathy. Can you say that again?
1: We're having a nice time today with our with our uh, feed remix. So, Kathy, I think you're. Right now, I'm paused and muted, so I can't hear or see you. might have to repeat what you said when you come back.
2: Okay, we're back. Unfortunately, it flashes across my screen that my internet is unstable, and that's been happening all weekend. I was afraid of that. Um, So so I, I think that we do things innocently. We do things that that makes sense to us in that moment. And I think accepting that and helping people to realize that they are doing things innocently and that other people are doing things innocently, including their children, um, goes a long way towards um, healing some of the anger that can come up
1: in adolescence. Sounds like really having high dose of self-compassion and compassion for others. Exactly. I know there's a a compassion exercise. Um, It's an avatar course, I think. I can't remember exactly where I found it, but I have a little track, a little card that I'll share um, because I think it was helpful just to understand that, you know, like me is something like, like me, this person wants to be understood. Like me, this person is experiencing pain so that we continue to actively in our minds generate what it takes for us to put ourselves in another person's shoes that we have the opportunity to be a little bit more, to listen with compassion, in other words. Yeah. Yeah, anything else that you do, Kathy, that would benefit families in connecting more meaningful ways with those in the teenage years?
2: I often remind parents that they made it through That that even if they had a lot of struggles when they were teenagers, they're here now. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they made it through and that they're okay.
1: (laughs) How do they react to that? Sometimes they're a little shocked. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, I I can't believe I (laughs) survived.
2: And, and a lot of times parents feel that way as they, they aren't sure how they survived. Because yeah. a lot of the families, like especially around substance abuse, when I'm working with a family where a, a young person is really struggling with substance abuse, not always, but there's a lot of times that parents have had the same struggles in their lives. Interesting.
1: You know, I will say, not had any experience with substance abuse myself, but I, I do remember having a conversation with my 14-year-old niece. And I know in many years when she sees this video, she'll appreciate the, the, this. So I didn't tell her at the time, but she was sharing with me how frustrated she was about an assignment she was doing with a group and continued to express how frustrated she was. Oh my gosh. And they're not doing this. And they're not doing that. And then I have to do this. And so she shared for, you know, a few moments and, and, you know, the coach in me came out and I said, well, are you open to it? to seeing this differently. She's like, yeah, sure, Tia, what, what do you think? So I shared my thoughts with her, you know, my high-level wisdom. And she's like, yeah, but this doesn't work. This doesn't-. So she continued, she was still frustrated about the situation. So I was like, hmm, you know, not engaging in the <clears throat> present, but really thinking about what other solution could I offer her? Let me help her reframe this, right? And, and so when she paused again, I said, may I offer a suggestion? You know, I'm, I'm asking all the right questions. So I tell her my, she's like, sure. I give her my suggestion. She's like, that wouldn't work because and I'm like, oh my goodness. Ah. And I remember it was a struggle for me. I, I was present to that. It was a struggle for me to want to fix it. There was this compulsion for me to want to fix it, to help her. And so kind of reining that back was challenging. That's why I kept, but I kept asking questions to see if I could massage it in there somehow. And then at, towards the end of the conversation, she says to me, oh, hey, my dad's here, my brother, he wants to talk to you. And she said, oh, thank you, Tia Valerie, for listening. I just needed to talk about it with somebody and just, oh, thank you. And that moment like hit me with a pan upside of the head. Because I realized a couple things. One is that sometimes it's just a matter of being able to express all the bottled up angst. She's one of five kids. She's the eldest. There's likely not a space for her all the time to get everything that she has in her mind out because there's a lot of other things going on in the home and that I don't have to know the answers to absolutely anything unless she specifically asks. like, oh, what a moment of humility, Uh, what a lesson in humility. And then also the the importance of just being a a listener and being present and watching myself go through that and having the presence of mind to go, okay, this is clearly not working. Why am I trying so hard? And you just said it too. I survived teenage years. There's things that she's going to have to experience fully so that she learns it like I learned it. There's no shortcut to being a teenager, there's no shortcut to being alive. <laughs> so that's, that's what came to mind when you shared that.
2: What else? I, yeah. I, okay. I truly do have my, my saying that about, well, you're here, you, you survived that. Mm. I'm, I'm aware not everybody does. Mm. Um, they're not in my office. And, and so, but I am aware that it's a really, uh, it's a time that people get really worried about, um, whether their kids are literally going to survive. And, and so I'm aware of that and I don't want to take that lightly. And I also strongly believe that resilience is something that we're born with. Mm -hmm. So that supports me in being able to help people recognize that teenagers are pretty resilient,
1: they make it through an awful lot. Yeah. Kathy, what, what are either the, the signs or the nudges that families should be looking out for that lets them know, hey, you might want to talk to someone about this? Like at what point do they know that their toolkit has reached the limit? Um, I have a, a,
2: a drawing that I draw out for kids sometimes, and I put a circle in the middle of the page, and I put me, you know, the, the person, the client, and, and I've done this with both coaching and with therapy, and then I put another circle around that and put family, and then there's another circle around that, and I put school or education. Mm -hmm. And then another circle around that is community. So if I think about that, that what we're moving toward is that person being as responsible for themselves as they can be. Mm -hmm. But they have family rules and they have family responsibilities um, as they as their everyday life. And then they also have everybody's involved somehow or another with school. Mm -hmm. and so they also have those rules and those responsibilities of learning and things like that and in the community there's rules that they also have to follow so they and and how to interact with people in the community so those that's everybody that's true of all of us and then you uh, or at least as as young people um we as we grow older we lose the education piece, but we still have the family and we still have the community Mm -hmm. and we still have us. When it gets to be a trigger that, oh, we need something more, might be when those rules are broken so consistently that they're ready to get thrown out. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, uh, multiple suspensions from school or failing lots of, of grades or in trouble with law. Or um, uh, in, in the home, uh, domestic violence, uh, fighting over things that, uh, or destruction of property, things like that. Um, those things that, if the police were called, the the child might, the teenager might actually uh, be arrested for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so all of those things. Uh, when it gets to be, there's certain things that are are normal. And, and things that are more extreme. So there's things down here, for instance, in, a, in an argument, somebody might just say, "Ah, eh, not worth arguing about. Over here, there's a normal level of arguing that you might even be getting really irritated at each other. And over here, it's anger and yelling at each other and you know, raging. Over here is when you start getting physical or destroying property. And definitely, if it's over here, is a time that you probably need some help. Yeah. If it's here and that happens over and over again, or it happens in other places, then that's usually a place that you might want to get some help. Um, if you keep having the same argument over and over again, then that's a time, a time that you might just want to reach out for some coaching because you might just need to get clearer on what it is you, you're looking for and what it is you want.
1: So, so basically, you've just given us a bit of, this, of the, not a timeline, but but essentially the, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> There's a... The range. The range. A range. I don't there we go. That sounds, yes, range. You've given a range of different experiences that families might be having that will indicate, okay, this might be an opportunity to engage someone else I, I love what you said so on the on the less dramatic end, let's call it that right it could be having the same argument over and over again and you know mm-hmm. if our level of frustration and dealing with young people is such that we're not being effective we're not making the difference that we really want to make getting some coaching having a conversation mm-hmm. with someone like you might help us come up with some strategies or come up with some clarity around how and what we can do to approach those situations I think that's on right. one end something very empowering for parents to get the coaching that you need in order to be more effective as a parent or even as a, as a youth leader, right? So right. whether you have children of your own or not, but you're working with young people and you want to make an impact, that's a way to handle it. And then on the other side, if you're really dealing with some really life and death situations with destruction of property or destruction of self or others, right. you really want to make sure that you get some support outside of the home and Kathy, if anyone's interested in connecting with you further, whether that's you or your organization, where should they find you?
2: Well, uh, I'm, I'm most commonly on uh, Facebook and Messenger. So um, if somebody wants to um, connect with me via Messenger, I'm more apt to get that more immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on Facebook, I'm listed under Kathy Lyons Conrad, and it's K-A-T-H-I-E. If somebody's.
1: Yes, Kathy. And that will, to be helpful, we coaching, sure coaching. I'll put your link and your uh, email address as well in the, in the notes. And that way, people, if you didn't get a chance to write this down, if you're driving or something, make sure that mm-hmm. we make it easy for you to connect. And, yes. Kathy, anything, any last comments to make before we close out our time together?
2: Um, other than it's been a delight to to have this conversation with you, and and one of the things I'm aware of is that just by listening to your questions, I've gotten more focus on some things that I can do to go back and work with people better.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah. look at that. Unexpected consequence and benefit. <laughs> and and that's, that's something I know
2: is I always learn something from somebody. Yeah.
1: Yes. And and I think you said it, right? When we go into a conversation listening to understand, we do learn something either about ourselves, about others, about some resource perhaps that we would never have been open to or prepared to receive otherwise. So I'm so grateful. The time just flew right by. (laughs) There's so much in this. And we may have to have a part two or something. At, At some point, I'm sure that there's gonna be some more conversation about this. But Kathy, I'm so grateful to you. Your, your, your ability to just share what's on your heart, and your mind, empowering context for how we can connect in meaningful ways with those young people in our lives and, and even appreciate our own youth and the fact that we made it through. <laughs> so thank you so very much for being here. Well, thank you. Yay. <laughs> and we survived the, all of the glitches with the internet too. So I appreciate yes. that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. But for those of you who would like to, you'll see this You'll see this in Facebook Live, of course, but then we also will have this mailed to your inbox if you subscribe to www.timetocomealive.com. You'll be sure to get this right in your inbox so you can continue to watch and listen. And then, I'll, like I said, I'll make sure that uh, Kathy's contact information is included for you. For those of you joining us next week, we're actually gonna be meeting Tuesday, this time we will be meeting on Tuesday, the 20 not the 24th. Today's the 24th. Oh my goodness. What just happened to our, <laughs> what just happened to our time? Um, and we have Anna Noyes will be joining us for our next time to come alive episode. We'll have an opportunity to talk about her spiritual gifts. She has some really interesting, and unique perspectives about life, living, about dreams based on her spiritual beliefs and her spiritual abilities. So looking forward to having that conversation. Hope you can join us live for time to come alive next week. Thank you all so much for listening today. And if you have questions, comments, et cetera, please make sure that you place them below. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you.